Okay, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We are going through the book of Hebrews. Last week, um, we talked about Noah and about how Noah's faith, um, how it was that God, like we, what we see in Noah's life is that we see a formula for blessing and for moving. What it was is that Noah was intimate with God and that intimacy led to a calling and then he had to persist in faithfulness to that calling. And really, you're going to see that pattern over and over and over again in scripture. And what we talked about last week is that we can have a tendency to put our calling first, meaning we're like, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And that's not a bad heart to have. Right? When we talk about how we have a calling in God and we do have work to do for him, that's true. But it can't come before a relationship and intimacy with God. What happens when we do that is we develop this church syndrome where we're just like little worker ants. And we're just working, working, working for God. But we don't feel real intimacy with them. Oftentimes it leads to cycles of burnout. You know, if you've ever gone through burnout in your life, it's because you're trying to do more than you have intimacy to do. Does that make sense? So um, what you want to do is you want to prioritize intimacy in your life. Okay, all right, today we're going to talk about a dude named Abraham. Abraham is a very important person in Scripture, very important person. He's called the father of faith. He is maybe the most famous man in history. Maybe. Right, and the reason is because he is the central figure um, in all the monotheistic religions. Right, he's central in Judaism, he's central in Christianity, but he's also central in Islam. He's a big deal in all of these religions. Um, and and really, what we see is that we are all children of Abraham. Scripture talks about how if we have the faith of Abraham, then we are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. He is the model, the exemplar of faith. And that's what we're going to see a little bit how the author of Hebrews talks about the faith of Abraham. So hopefully you are there. And in verse 8, we will have it on the board here. Amen. I'm going to be reading out the NLT. It says this, It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as, an inherit as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going, and even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child. Though she was barren and was too old, she believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there was no way to count them. Verse 13, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they could call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to, call, to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Amen. Okay, I got to confess, when I first read this passage many years ago, I was really confused. I didn't understand what this type of language meant. Um, a city with eternal foundations and such. So 
what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time today to go over um, the biblical concept of New Jerusalem, because that's exactly what he's talking about here. There's kind of two main themes in the passage that we just looked at. Number one is this. It's that living by faith means that we're living with the tension of unfulfilled hope. If we're living by faith, it means that there's a dream in our hearts, but we don't have it yet. We're longing for it, but we don't have it yet. And what you see over and over in Scripture is you have these people, these paragons of faith, who are longing for something, but they never seem to get there. That kind of sucks. Right? If you're, if you're Moses, and God speaks to you, and has got this promise of a land for you where you, you won't be abused and oppressed as slaves anymore, but it'll be your own land. And Moses is living with this dream, right? He's living with this dream. And he gets right to the edge, and he dies. You guys know the story? And it's kind of like that with Abraham. And we're going to explain exactly why, but we see this dynamic over and over and over again in Scripture. And, you know, it can kind of seem a little unfair, I know that for many of us, we can live in this tension also. Maybe God has spoken to you in your life and he's given you a promise, a dream, that he's going to take care of that issue in your life. He's going to heal that fear or that wound, or he's going to provide the things that you need, or maybe he's going to provide that someone that you need. Whatever the dream that's in your heart, hopefully, if we're really walking with God, we all have those things because Guess what? That's what God does. He speaks to our hearts. He speaks to our hearts, and he tells us of his plans for our lives. What that does is he gives us a longing, and it gives us a sense of trust, like God knows me. He knows the thing that I'm after, and now I trust him because of the intimate promise that was given to me. Am I making sense? And that's the story for Abraham also. Next week, we're going to look at how that pertained to Isaac, his son. But this week, what we see is that the dream that was in Abraham's heart was a city. Kind of weird. Kind of weird. And the way that it's described here, in verse 10, says Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Huh. And then in verse 16, it says, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed he called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Okay? What he's talking about here is a very, very important theme in Scripture. It's really important. In fact, you probably think it's important too. You just call it heaven. Right? If you've been in the church for any length of time, we talk about heaven, how when we die, we're going to go up to this magical place in the sky, right? And for many of us, we have um, a terrible understanding of what it's going to be like, right? This is, I, I rail on this a lot. If you missed our eschatology series last year, I rail on this quite a bit. But I hate the vision of heaven where, like, we're going to be go up and we're going to sit on clouds and we're going to play harps forever. I think that's the most demonic vision of heaven. Because <laughs> nobody wants to go there. Right? If you say, hey, Right now, if you could go to heaven, would you go? Most people, if they're really being honest, you know, they're going to be like, uh, well, can I get married first? Right? 
can I have, can I go on that vacation that I've been looking forward to first, you know? And maybe, you know, before I go back to school or go back to work, yeah, yeah, then I can go. But our vision of heaven is so weak that we would rather do all these earthly things. Does that make sense? It's like, what a terrible vision of heaven. Okay, it's terrible. Can I, can I say it because it's not the biblical vision of heaven? It's not the biblical vision of heaven, right? In fact, what we're going to see, especially as we look at the theme here today, is that the theme of heaven is all over the Bible. It's all throughout the Bible. It's just kind of disguised, at least for us who are Christians in the 21st century. A lot of times the Bible is talking about what we think of as heaven, but it keeps calling it Jerusalem. Or let me put it to you another way. Have you ever read the Old Testament and wondered at why the heck Jerusalem is such a big deal? It's coming up over and over and over and over again. There's all of these prophecies about Jerusalem. And you know what we do as the church? We, we change them and we make them ours. I don't know if you guys have ever really noticed that. But look at Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. Now... I'm using the New Living Translation here, which is really fantastic. They do a fantastic job in the New Living because you'll notice right there they say, Arise Jerusalem. <laughs> I bet you if you don't have the New Living Translation, it doesn't say Jerusalem there. It just says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. But the reality is this entire chapter is talking about Jerusalem. But you know how many messages I've heard on Isaiah 60 where it was about me arising and shining? Right? You arise and shine, right? For the glory of the Lord is alighted upon you. The only problem with that understanding is it's not really what Isaiah 60 is about. Isaiah 60 is about Jerusalem. And that's kind of weird for us. Can we read it a little bit? It says this Arise, Jerusalem, let your light shine for all to see, for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth, but the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. It's this idea of, the, of Jerusalem, the city, being glorified, and all the other nations of the world are drawn to it. Right? They're like, whoa, Jerusalem is so awesome. I want to come to it. And in fact, we see a lot of prophecies like this throughout Scripture, this idea of come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, right? And he will teach us of his ways, and the law will go forth from Zion. This idea that the nations of the earth are, being, are gathering to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is so amazing. And if you're familiar with Jerusalem today, it's not like that today. Jerusalem today is the most controversial city in the entire earth. Now, if you don't understand the politics behind this, I'm going to try and, and sum it up in, in a second here, okay? Here's why it's so controversial. You have a Jewish people there, and they want Jerusalem because of all the prophecies that we're talking about today. Okay, Because of all the prophecies we're talking about today, which is this promise that God said, I'm going to give you Jerusalem, and that Jerusalem is going to be this great, glorious city and all the nations of the earth will be drawn to it. And because many Jews believe that promise, they hold on to Jerusalem. They say, we must have Jerusalem. The only problem is that there's a whole other group of people, and there's a lot more of them. We're talking about Muslims right now, 
Okay? In Islam, Jerusalem is the third holiest city in Islam. And that's because the Prophet Muhammad is recorded and is said to have had, you know, uh, this episode where he got taken up to heaven, right, in Jerusalem. And so because of that, for all Muslims, Jerusalem is considered a holy city. And moreover, you know, Islam has its own kind of versions. By the way, if you don't know this, Muslims believe in the Old Testament. They just don't believe that our Old Testament is correct. They believe it got changed, that the Jews basically took it and changed it to make them the chosen people. And they don't believe that, but they believe in all these people. They believe in Abraham. They even believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus was a prophet. They just think that all the version that we have of the Bible is, is, is altered. Does that make sense? So in their version of the Bible, what it looks like is Islam goes out from the Middle East and it takes over the whole earth. Right? This is a, a central belief. Guess what? We believe that too about Christianity. And if you take in our night class, we spend a little bit of time on that, right? On Daniel 2 about the rock that comes and destroys the, the big statue and this rock becomes a mountain and it fills the whole earth with the kingdom of God. Guess what? Christians believe that too, which we're going to talk about today. But guess what? Muslims believe the same thing. They believe that Islam is going to go out and take over the entire earth. There's just this problem. And the problem is that there's a non-Islamic nation right there in the heart of the Middle East. Not only in the heart of the Middle East, but it controls Jerusalem, the third most holy city in Islam. So what you get is you get a lot of very angry Muslims who are devoted to the destruction of the state of Israel. Now, I'm not saying all Muslims are like that. In fact, in the West, we have a lot more you know, liberal, humanistic Muslims, and so they tend to do what liberal, humanistic Christians do. They don't read the text so literally. They kind of allegorize and they spiritualize. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying that every Muslim believes this, but the reality is there's something like 1.7 billion Muslims. That's a lot of Muslims. And many of them do believe this. Many of them are deeply offended by Israel, which is why throughout Israel's history, it's been invaded by Muslim-dominated nations around it. I hope that's not news. So, uh, uh, <laughs> so what we see here is that right now, Jerusalem's the most controversial city in the world. And can I just say, it's not like it's a coincidence, okay? If we are students of scripture, this isn't something we should be surprised about because it was prophesied thousands of years ago that it would be like this. In fact, if you go back to Isaiah 60 and you go down to verse 14, it says this, the descendants of your tormentors will come and bow before you. Those who despised you will kiss your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord and Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Though you were once despised and hated, with no one traveling through you, I will make you beautiful forever, a joy to all generations. Look at this in, in verse 18. Violence will disappear from your land. The desolation and destruction of war will end. Salvation will surround you like city walls, and praise will be on the lips of all who enter there. No longer will you need the sun to shine by day, nor the moon to give its light by night. For the Lord your God will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set, your moon will not go down, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning will come to an end. Everything is talking about the city of Jerusalem. Now that sounds kind of weird. Like, what does that mean? Like, is that just figurative? Is that just symbolic? I think there's an element where it can be, but 
I think what it's talking about, and we'll look at other scriptures that I think confirm this, is what we're talking about when we're talking about Jerusalem is not just an earthly city. It's not just an earthly city. It's not just that you know Jerusalem one day will get so amazing and the buildings will be so big, right? And everyone will be like, wow, that is a great city. I want to go there. I think it's more than that. I think that when we look at Jerusalem, what we need to understand as Christians is that the idea of heaven that we take from scriptures like Revelation 21, this idea of this city, if you know, like with all the, the gemstones and the gates are like pearls. And if you're familiar with that passage, really what it's talking about is new Jerusalem. And then in Revelation 21, on the board, In verse 9, it says, Then one of the seven angels who held seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of the heaven from God. Now, take a look at that. This idea of John, who's prophesying in Revelation, and he sees a heavenly Jerusalem and it starts to descend out of heaven, right? Now, if you go on, I, I didn't want to read the whole description to you, but John talks about it being 1,400 miles in length and width and height. And height. It's like a giant cube. 1,400 miles. You know how far that is? That's the distance from Los Angeles to Dallas, Texas. It's about 1,400 miles. So can you imagine, mm, here to Dallas, here to Dallas, <laughs> what is it talking about? It's talking about this entire heavenly city descending, and in some way, New Jerusalem combines with Jerusalem, old Jerusalem we can call it, and creates this capital, this center of the kingdom of God on the earth. Okay, Now, if that's news to you, if you've never heard this before, I want to lovingly say this. How do I lovingly say this to you? <laughs> I want to say this. Look, if our understanding of the Bible is just try and be a good person so you can go to heaven, I think that's the dumbing down of the entire Bible. I think what we have in Christianity is like a a total culture of biblical illiteracy because as soon as we start talking about any of the more mature things of scripture, people start going, how does this apply to me? Be good? Act nice? And in my mind, I'm like, oh. why, why is this important? Because Listen to the, what the story of Abraham is. The whole point is, how did Abraham become a great man of faith? Because he got a vision of a city made by God. It says Abraham is the first person in scripture that's called a prophet. Abraham, Paul had many prophetic visions in his life. But clearly we know that one of them that he had was this vision of a heavenly city. And that is the impetus that's pulling. That's why when God speaks to him and says, Abraham, leave your family, leave your homeland, and go to a land that I will show you, 
Abraham has some idea of what God is planning. Right? It's not just, oh yeah, get up and move over here, Abraham. No, that's not what it, can I tell you, that type of vision can't lead you to have the faith that Abraham had. Your vision will let bridge you another way. If your vision of heaven is, I, I go die and I get to sit on a cloud and play a harp forever, you can't live with great faith with a vision like that. Because you don't even want to go there. If you don't want to go there, how the heck are you going to be able to persist through hardship and temptation, the fame of men, the praise of people, the riches, the deceitfulness of wealth? How the heck are you going to be able to get through all of that if you think your reward is I get to go up and play a harp for eternity? <laughs> no. You know what it leads you? It leads you into a life of compromise. Because you're like, well, all I get is a harp in eternity. I'm going to get it whether I do this or not. I want to say that's why I'm convinced in our culture today, we have to be biblically literate. We have to understand what the scripture is talking about here. We can't just go, oh, New Jerusalem, that's weird stuff. Yeah. No, it's all over the Bible. Yeah. It's all over the Bible. All the prophecies about Jerusalem. It says, Jerusalem, I have assigned watchers on your walls. They will keep silent neither day or night until you make Jerusalem a praise on the earth. What? Who cares? Jerusalem praise on the earth? Whatever that's supposed to mean. No, we're talking about Jerusalem being glorified. So I'm it becoming the new Jerusalem. The dream of our hearts. That's what I'm talking about. Let me put it to you another way. For many in our culture, we become captivated by a vision of society where everybody is equally wealthy. You ever heard that vision? Because that's what, you know, pretty much every Democrat politician talks about constantly, right? This idea, by the way, they didn't come up with this idea. A guy named Karl Marx came up with this idea. Okay? This guy's like, oh, I have this, oh, I have this amazing vision. What if instead of all these rich, evil capitalists oppressing the poor little people, what if everyone just shared everything? And there's no more fighting and no more war. We weren't any longer Germans and French. No, we're just one beautiful people who share everything together. Do you understand that that vision of utopia is at the heart of democratic policy in America? It's socialist. It's a socialist vision. Hate to bring it to you. Can I tell you what another truth is? That it's a total ripoff of the Bible. It's a ripoff. They just ripped it off. They stole it. And they just put a humanistic twist on it. And we don't need like some Jesus coming from the sky and saying this kind of thing. No, we can learn to do it ourselves. We can just share everything. Well, after we kill all the evil capitalists and take their stuff. Or after we tax them all so I can have free tuition. Oh, yeah, no, but... Well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't go for this. It's demonic, okay? Can I be clear? Socialism is demonic, okay? I don't want to just be political. It's because I have a discernment in my spirit where I can see that if you're, like, envious, if it's breeding envy, it's like, yeah, those rich people don't deserve that much money. I deserve some of that money. Can I tell you? Maybe, maybe we should rebuke the spirit of jealousy and envy, right? You know, you, can you understand what Christianity is? Christianity says, no, you don't need any money to be happy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It says that Jesus was like, 
to live. I don't have like a home or anything. Can I tell you, Jesus was probably the happiest man on earth, and he was one of the poorest people on earth probably during his time. Do you understand how this philosophy that has injected itself into our culture is constantly preached? It's a big ripoff. It's a perversion of the biblical truth. Why? Because the biblical version is better. It's better. It's not about you going to La La Land and playing a harp forever. It's about La La Land coming to earth and taking over the whole earth forever. That's the big news. The big news of the Bible is not that we get to escape to heaven. It's that we're resurrected on the earth with immortal glorified bodies to take dominion over the earth in the precise way that we were designed to have it with a perfect, eternal, immortal king forever. That's what the gospel is. Oh, I thought it was about how you go to heaven. No! It's about how you get to be a part of that kingdom. Does that make sense? That's the biblical gospel. I don't like all that, you know, let's just, just turn it all down to just believe in Jesus and you can be saved. I get it. I get it. I get the heart of that. Making it easy. Praise him. But there's so much, there's so much more to scriptures. There's so much more to plan of God. And we need that vision. It's got to be full. If you can't envision it, how can you live it? If you can't envision it, let me put it to you another way. Why does marketing work? Why is it that you buy so much Coca-Cola? Some of you are like, I don't buy Coke. Marketing doesn't work on me at all. Oh yeah? You're gonna pull out your iPhone next? Why does marketing, why does advertising work? Because it's just giving you vision over and over again. Right? You see another iPhone commercial. Oh yeah, that's cool. Oh, they're dancing. Whoa. It's not like you consciously go through the mental cycle, right? But there's something inside that goes, oh, they're happy and dancing with that iPhone, right? Oh, yeah, cool, that, that sounds cool. And what's happening, they're giving you vision for what this would do in your life. Am I making sense? The problem with so many Christians is their vision is so small for the kingdom. Their vision is like I, I, another prayer meeting on Tuesday. No, the point of the prayer meeting is to pray in the vision of the kingdom that you're supposed to have burning inside of you. Yeah. How can you have a glorious prayer meeting if your vision is just the prayer meeting? <laughs> That's a terrible prayer. You're praying for a great prayer meeting? <laughs> no, the point is you're so, uh, the, the vision of the kingdom of God is so alive in your heart, you can foresee the day when the perfect king will come. And he will establish justice on the earth. That all wrongs will be righted. That war will come to an end. That death itself will be destroyed. That's the biblical promise. That that's what Jesus promised to us. And we're supposed to be telling everyone else about that promise. And if that promise is alive and burning inside of us, you know what it does? It makes us go, no, I don't need worldly wealth. Sometimes it's kind of nice. I like eating steak dinner sometimes. But the point is, I get how that's such a small thing in light of eternity. Without a vision of eternity, then it just becomes you're just living for pleasure and luxury. You have no other vision. Your only vision of life is how can I make this reality right around me a little bit better? Boy, if I bought that really awesome chair, man, that would be glorious. Right? What does that mean? It means you're lacking a vision. You know what happens when you have vision? You give your money to serve the vision. Yeah. When you have no vision, then it's like, oh, 
I gotta give all the money to make my my, my I gotta make myself more comfortable, right? Yeah. Brothers and sisters, no vision is what we're after. What is the Bible talking about? We're talking about faith. Faith is having the vision of the Lord. Faith comes by hearing, says Romans ten, and hearing by the word of God. When he speaks to us, his word becomes alive inside of us. And that's the story of Abraham, that he had a vision of a city built by God. And he's like, God, I want to live there. And God's like, I want you to live there. So come with me. Now, if you know this about prophecy, guess what? You get this glorious prophetic word. But oh, oh God's plans are so amazing for me. And you know what usually happens right after you get that glorious prophetic word? Like the opposite. The opposite of what you dreamed, right? You're like, God's going to heal me of everything, right? I'm going to be joyful all the time. And what happens? You start to go through the hardest season of your life. Oh my God, it's so hard. Why? Why? Why does that happen? Because the point of the prophecy is to give you vision for the process. That's the point of the prophecy. The prophecy gives you vision so you can keep that vision alive when you're going through the hell. Make sense? Right? Joseph gets a word. What's the word? He has this glorious vision. His brothers and his mom and dad, they're all bowing down to him. He's like a king. He's like, guys, I just had the most awesome vision. You were all bowing down to me. I was ruling over all of you. Right? And what's the next couple decades of Joseph's life? Right? Taking him through hell so that his character could be formed so that that could come true. Did the vision come true? Absolutely it came true. But that's the nature of how this works. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it for us. He says in this life you will have trials, you will have tribulations, you will have troubles. And guess what? He's the one who modeled and showed us how to do it. Why? Because our glory is not for this age. Brothers and sisters, if you don't have that in your heart, you have to nail that one down because there's so much garbage Christianity out there about how God wants to make this life amazing for you. Now, in a sense, it's true if you believe that life is on the inside. Right? If you believe that abundant life is the fullness of joy and peace and love and all that, then yes, it's true. That's not garbage Christianity. That's wonderful. <laughs> right? But, you know, I see all these kinds of posts about how, you know, oh, God is showing me that he's going to, you know, provide. And by that, I mean, like, he's going to make me rich. And he wants me to be rich and wealthy and just enjoy it all. Now, is there a degree of truth there? Yeah, I don't think, like, God wants you to suffer. That's not his heart. Right? But the point is when he blesses, he doesn't want us. It's like me. Do I want to give my kid a hundred dollar bill? That would be moronic. You know what would happen? I would have like ten pounds of chocolate show up at my house. Right? You like he pull out his little iPad, order on Amazon. That's exactly what would happen. If I get you a hundred dollar bill, it'd be nerf guns and chocolate. I'd be swimming in them. Right? Why? Because he's stupid. What is he supposed to be smart? He said it. Right? We're talking about absolute standards here. Right? At this point, he does not have the ability to rightly manage $100. Am I making any sense? So we think. 
that God's plan for us is chocolate and Nerf guns. No. No. He wants to make you mature so that you can rightly handle the wealth of eternity. In eternity. That's why I talk about that our callings are eternal. Hear me. Look, just to share a little testimony. When I was younger, when I was in when I was in college, I remember I had these prayer meetings. And in some of these prayer meetings, I remember I had these visions. I didn't know that they were visions at the time, but when I look back, they're clearly visions. What is this? I saw this picture in my imagination, right? And I saw with me, and I was leading worship for thousands of people, right? And the glory of God was like coming on everybody, and like people were encountering God, and I was like, that's what I want, God. That's that's it, right? That's that's what I want, right? Now, you know what happened shortly after that? I was in that exact position, right on Sprawl Plaza, if you know Berkeley, right? It's like this big plaza, you know, singing through the loudspeaker, right? Literally everyone on campus listening to my voice. Worst singing performance of my life! Okay, I shared that before. It was so terrible. I was out of breath. I was so nervous. It was a nightmare, okay? But you know that sometimes... There's this thing in me that I'm like, but God, I have, I have this gift, and I want to use it. I want to like, I want, I want it. I want to worship it for the thousands of millions. I remember I went to a conference once, my, my spiritual father's conference, and um, there was a worship with one of these spiritual daughters from Brazil showed us pictures of her worship concert in Brazil. She had a million people at her worship concert in Brazil, and she was showing us video pictures of this, right? And I remember I talked to another guy at this conference, and there's this guy who was like. <clears throat> Who, who was like leading like this huge house church network in, in India, and he had just built like his hundredth seminary or something like that. And he's like, oh yeah, and what are you doing? I'm like, I'm a youth pastor. Yeah. Kind of like, hundred kids almost? <laughs> you know? And there's this thing where we want the glorious vision now. Yeah. Am I making sense? But over and over the Lord has had to correct me and be like, Dennis, the glory is not for this age. Okay, the, even the most glorious vision. Why? You have to have the understanding or you won't be able to go through where God's calling you to go through. Yeah. How do you become great in eternity? Oh, it's you do the things that most impress people. <laughs> That's the exact opposite of the correct answer. <laughs> Scripture says how do you become great in eternity? It says you become the servant of all. That's what my Bible says. You might have, you know, the new American version, right, where you, you know, form a, you know, a multinational corporation and you become rich. That's how you glorify God. Maybe God has that call for you. I'm not going to say that's not from God, but I am saying this. If your vision is for glory in this age, you're really missing what the biblical priority is. No, Abraham was longing for a city that he never saw. In fact, he was... 3,500 years off and counting. Right? He missed it, Abraham. If he was expecting in his lifetime, he was a little off because it still is not here yet. Right? And who knows exactly when it's going to get here. But the point is this. With this was that, did that count against Abraham in God's eyes? No. It counted for him. Why? Because even though he didn't get what was promised in his lifetime, he stood the course and remained faithful. Does that mean that God did not fulfill his promise? No, because God is eternal. What's the point? 
What if some of the visions that God has given you will never be seen in your lifetime? What if they're for your children's generation? What if they're for your children's children's generation? Does that make any sense? God had to disabuse me. I still remember my second year of college. I was freaking out that maybe revival wouldn't come by the time I graduated. It seems short-sighted now, right? But at the time, I was like, it's got to come now. I'm only here for two more years, God. Right? I'm not making sense. We get so short-sighted because we don't understand the ways of God and how it works. We get impatient. We get worried. Oh, my gosh, but that guy's doing so well in school. He's going to go to Harvard grad school. We get worried about things that don't matter because we don't understand God's timetable. The pathway for Joseph to glory was to slavery and then to jail. That was the path of glory, right? The path of glory for Abraham was to go and be a nomad in Israel. In this God forsaken land, understand, in Abraham's day, he was living in the center of the universe. He was like near Babylon, right? That's where all the action's happening. And God's like, go over to that backwater over there, right? And live as a nomad in tents. Now, Abraham was a rich guy. He was rich. He could have probably built a whole bunch of stuff. But he lived like a nomad, and his children lived like a nomad, and his children's children lived like a nomad. They all lived like nomads. That doesn't seem like a very glorious thing if we were just to judge Abraham for ourselves. Like, how would you grade Abraham? Be honest. Be honest. Because you know what Abraham did? He went to Egypt, right? He's like, he had a really hot wife, apparently, who was kind of his half-sister, too. Kind of weird, but anyway. And he was afraid, because in that time, if you had a hot wife, they would often just kill you and take your wife. That's kind of how it worked. So they decided they're going to lie about it, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's just my sister. And you really want to sleep with her? Don't kill me. Just go ahead and, you know, hand her back when you're done. That sounds kind of crazy for our times, right? But guess what? If you were living back then, where they, you're really afraid they're really going to kill you, you might, you might think a little differently. But yeah, at our side, like, well, that didn't seem like very filled with faith, Abraham. Right? Jeez. You give your wife to another man. He did it twice. <laughs> Doesn't seem that faithful. And yet, when God judges Abraham's life, what does he say? He says Abraham was one of the most faithful people that ever lived. That is crazy. That is crazy. The standard of measurement that God uses is not like our standard of measurement. That's why we have to divorce ourselves of human understanding of success if we're going to live faithful lives. Okay. Now, I always have to clarify here because sometimes people get the wrong idea. Oh, Pastor Dennis said fail all the school and don't care about grades and work and all that kind of stuff. No, Pastor Dennis did not say that. If you actually listen to any of my sermons on that subject, I say that you should be ten times better than everyone around you. It's just if God speaks to you and says, do something that might make you fail that test or fail that whatever, then you obey that. Because ultimately, you don't care about the the grade or the scores on your test. You care about being faithful to the Father who has an eternal destiny for you. Your destiny is not controlled by your college professors. You want a newsflash? Your college professors are not perfect people. You know, I graded essays once upon a time. When I was in, in Texas, I was a graduate student in seminary, 
and I did SAT tutoring, and I graded essays, SAT essays. Can I be honest, sometimes I just read it through, and I was like, whatever. <laughs> you know, when you actually grade stuff, you realize that the people who are grading it, they probably get a lot of things wrong. You know, one time, I didn't know this was wrong, okay? This is a testimony, I didn't realize it was wrong at the time, okay? I wrote, I had one paper due on Central, I was taking a class on Central Asia, and I was taking another poli class on nuclear proliferation, right? So I wrote a paper on nuclear proliferation in Central Asia. <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever that. You're not supposed to do that. I didn't know that you couldn't do that at the time, right? I, I wrote a paper, I turned it in for both classes, same paper, right? You know what happened? I got an A in, in the Central Asia class. And I got like a B minus or a C plus, I can't remember, but it was like in the, in the other one, right? Same paper, right? Now it could have been, it was more applicable to one than the other, but you know what the reality is? I know this, your grade is not totally indicative of your performance, right? What's my point? Sometimes we stress so much about getting a great grade in one class, when the reality is, do you understand that God's priorities for your life are so different? God's priority for life is to be excellent, right? To do your best in his eyes, and then you trust him for eternal reward. And if you think that that means a bigger harp, well, that's not gonna be very motivational. <laughs> Am I making sense? Robust vision of eternity. That's what Abraham had. And he had a vision for New Jerusalem. Hear me, this is important, okay? We must have a vision for New Jerusalem. I mean, heaven on earth. Why? Because God has a strong vision for it. Look at Zechariah chapter 8. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. My love for Mount Zion is passionate and strong. I am consumed with passion for Jerusalem. And now the Lord says, I am returning to Mount Zion. And I will live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. The mountain of the Lord of heaven's armies will be called my holy mountain. Do you understand? Why is it that evangelical Christians care about Jerusalem? Because God cares about Jerusalem. That's why. That's why. I didn't understand this for a long time. I didn't understand what the big deal was about Jerusalem. I didn't understand why we're supposed to pray for Jerusalem. But if you read the scriptures, you cannot get away from the fact that there is clearly a link established by God in the prophets between earthly Jerusalem and heavenly Jerusalem. There's a link that's clearly there. We're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're supposed to bless the nation of Israel. Guess what? The promise that God gave Abraham to bless Israel so that you would be blessed is still active today. It's still alive today. Do you know? Let me put it to you another way. Do you know that Jews have been persecuted throughout history? In every place they've gone, persecution has broken out in mass against them. In fact, America has been the most resistant to anti-Semitism. In a lot of ways, a lot of Jews see America as a place of safety in their lives. And right now, that's absolutely true. But guess what? A hundred years ago, they were saying the exact same thing about Germany. A hundred years ago, Germany was the place most free of anti-Semitism. This is how this works. There is a demonic spirit that is assigned to the destruction of the Jewish people. And if you don't understand that, then what happens is you don't understand why the heck people start hating Jews all over the earth. You understand why they're persecuted everywhere they go. 
Do you understand that in the eyes of most Jews, they see Christians as their biggest persecutors? I didn't know that until I actually studied this. If you ask most Orthodox Jews who are the greatest persecutors of Jewish people throughout history, it's Christians. Why? Because the early church, when it, it, it started to persecute Jews. And then Nazi Germany was considered Christian, a Christian nation. And then the Inquisition was persecuting Jews. Am I making sense? There's this history. Why? Because Christians did not understand these promises. They just took the Old Testament and said, oh, that's the Jewish half of the Bible that we don't need to understand at all. And I'll just read the New Testament. And can I tell you what that happened? What happens? You start coming up with all sorts of crazy interpretations of the New Testament. They're totally divorced from their Old Testament context. Why do I hit things like Calvinism over the head? Come on now. Somebody are you talking about Calvinism again? Because it's a New Testament invention that's divorced of Old Testament understanding. There's nothing in the Old Testament that hits at Calvinism. It doesn't exist. So when we read New Testament passages and we invent new meanings. And it, it, affects, it affects the church. Church, hear me. We must become a biblically literate church. You must become a student of the word. You must study it. Why? Because God gave it to us because it's important. Am I making sense? A lot of times in our lives, we don't know what to envision God. What, what vision are you calling me to? What dream are you calling me to? Start with the biblical ones. Start with the ones that God talks about in Scripture. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. What does that mean? It means let people do more good things. No! No! It means let your kingdom come. Talk about New Jerusalem descending from the sky with its king. Why is at the end of the age the spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus? Doesn't that seem backwards? Shouldn't seem like, here we come, Lord Jesus. No, we're saying, come, come to earth, come. Why? Because the pressure in our culture is going to build, brothers and sisters. We talked about this in our eschatology series, but we must be so reminded about this. We live in cycles of history. We are in the greatest cycle in, the, in terms of the most comfortable cycle in human history. You're the most prosperous generation of Christians in the history of the world. That's you and me. It is folly to think that it is forever going to be like this. Especially when the scriptures warn us about the birth pangs that are coming to the earth. It's the birth pangs that spiritually as a metaphor release the kingdom of God on the earth. The closer we get to the kingdom, the more the earth travails as in birth pangs. So hear me, we are in a season of great comfort, and in a lot of ways, it's the hardest to live by faith in seasons of great comfort, because you have so many distractions, right? You can just, you know, get a nice job and have 2.3 kids and get a house and go on vacations in Malibu, well, I don't know, right? You can do all that stuff, and nobody's going to think it's weird, but brothers and sisters, Oh, that we would have the faith of Abraham, even though we live in such a prosperous and great nation, in such a prosperous region, and we're so blessed ourselves. Oh, that we would have the faith of Abraham, that God would open up the eyes of our hearts to see the kingdom, that we would envision the kingdom of God, and we would set our lives on a pilgrimage 
That's what this is. My question to you, Christian, is your life on pilgrimage? Or have you made a home here in Los Angeles? Have you made a home here in Orange County? And the plan for the rest of your life is you're going to drink boba. <laughs> buy a bigger TV next year. Or is there a greater vision that moves us and that controls our lives? Because if there is one, I tell you, you will be called to another place. I'm not talking necessarily physically, but oftentimes physically. If you're really following Jesus and your heart is set on pilgrimage, you refuse to make this your home, then God will call you to where he can shape your character. Your character cannot be shaped in a life of ease. It's not possible. It's not possible to have great maturity unless you be pressured through difficulties and trials and hardships. It's not possible. You must leave your place of comfort. For some of us, that means coming to a Korean church. <laughs> For some of us, it might mean leaving the Korean church. It might mean leaving California. It might mean leaving our small group of friends. It might be leaving our routine activity. It might just do this and this and this and this. Maybe God will call us into something that's different and uncomfortable and we don't actually like, but because we feel that the Lord is saying, go to a place. Go to a place that I will show you. And you just set out because you have a hint of something. You don't know exactly what it is, but you have a hint that God has plans in your life and you're willing to take a step of faith into the unknown. Brothers and sisters, that's the only way your faith can be grown in a dynamic way. That's why throughout the scriptures, God calls his people into a time of pilgrimage where they go out from what's comfortable to them. Peter does fishing his whole life. In a day, his life is radically transformed. We see that over and over and over again in scripture. So hear me, in this season of your life, what's your priority? Intimacy with Jesus. Oh, that you have intimacy with him. Because the pattern is, if you put him first in your life, he will start to direct and lead and guide your life. Am I making sense? Worship man. If we have a glorious vision of eternity, then we'll live glorious lives by God's standard. If we have a weak vision of eternity, then we can't help but live faithless lives. It's very difficult because this is the type of people that we are. If there's a clear reward in front of us, we're able to withstand temptation. We're able to do something hard if we can envision the reward. That's why Jesus talks, do you know Jesus talks more about rewards than any other person in the Bible? Over and over he's talking about rewards. The one who overcomes. He who becomes the servant of all will be greatest of all. 
talks about how even him, the Son of Man, didn't come to lord over people, but to serve them, to become that servant. And in Philippians, Paul says, therefore, he was exalted to the highest place, right? Because he gave his life as a ransom for many, therefore, he was exalted that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess. Brothers and sisters, my desire and longing in my heart in this season is that God would increase our faith. Increase our faith. Oh, that he would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what he is saying and what he's doing in the earth. If we're consumed with the plans of God, then our lives gain purpose, our lives gain vision, but to do so, we have to draw near to him. Amen. That's why this whole season is about drawing near. I'm believing for God to open up our ears in a fresh way, meaning having a greater prophetic anointing, ability to hear from the Spirit of the Lord. I believe that's what he's doing, not just in BTM. I think he's doing it in our whole church in this season. I think there's a greater grace to hear from him. I want to challenge you. If you're not used to that, you're like, that's not really who I am. I want to say, that's, that's who I thought I was. I thought I wasn't the kind of person who could hear from God. I thought I wasn't the kind of person that felt weird spiritual things. I want to say, if you can believe it, then God can do it. If you refuse to believe it, then you'll stay as you are. I want to lovingly challenge you. God wants us to know his voice. He wants us to know his voice. Doesn't mean that we'll hear him every day, but it does mean that we can count on him to speak to us in the important decisions of our life. His words of affirmation as a father, that we can encounter his presence regularly. We can have real intimacy with him. There's a song that I love. It says, I want to know you, Lord, like I know a friend. I love that. Right? Misty Edwards says, I want to sing like you're in the room with me. Right? I want to sing right to you. I want to look right at you. I want to have a sense that God is right here with me all the time. So I just want to invite us to bring our hearts before the Lord. Let's ask Him for grace, for vision for our lives, and in particular, vision for intimacy. That's the prayer of this season. Vision and vision for intimacy. And if you would like prayer, we have a, a whole wonderful space up here that you could just come and we will gladly pray for you if you want prayer this afternoon. Let's bring our hearts before the Lord right now. If we could just stand up as we... <coughs>